Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you're in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and fact in all their forms. Each week, the Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Hi there. Tonight, we are pleased and delighted to have with us as our special guest, Rafen Wolfson, executive producer and designer for a new uh, short subject film. It's a fan film based on Wheel of Time, of all things. Welcome to the show, Rafen. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So, so what is the title of the current work? The film is called Flight from Shadow. And what does it cover from the Wheel of Time books? Uh, primarily, um, Flight from Shadow covers, it's from the first book, from uh, Eye of the World, and it covers chapter 32, which in the book is titled Four Kings in Shadow. Um, and we came up with the name because at the point that we pick up the story in that book, there's already been three or 400 pages of exposition before you get to that chapter that kind of establish and explain things. Hopefully so, there's some plot in there too. Yes. I'm yes. Just, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. It, well, yeah, just, exactly. Just I mean, there's a lot, nice. there's a lot <laughs> in there. There's a lot in there that, that sort of sets the world up so that what happens makes sense. And, mm -hmm. So, so, so you do, don't have that. People are going to walk into this film without that background. How do you? Exactly. Are you able to? Does it make sense? Of course, it must make sense when when they no. do that. How do you do that? Um, what uh, the what we did is we we added some we added some material into the chapter to <clears throat> to give some give give that that cushion of. Cushion of fundamental uh, explanation, so that what was happening in the in the meat of it, we had to do. We had to kind of play with it a few times. Um, one of the one of our challenges with the project was that um, yes, this was made for the fans, but we also wanted to make it so that if you had never heard of Wheel of Time, and I'll get into why that is, 
um, if you've never heard of Wheel of Time, you could still follow follow it and, and know what was going on. And it was um, it was an important aspect of of our task to make it so that it was fan friendly and fan excitable, but also uh, non fan digestible. So fan excitable, I think, uh, kind of uh, adds a lot to the conversation. Um, you said that the fans are really going nuts over this thing. So far, and it's amazing because none of them have actually seen it other than uh, some, some stills and, and bits that I've put out there. But uh, I've got people now um, all over the world that are anticipating. This is a... Let me, let me, if I may, let me tell you a little bit about the Wheel of Time fan base because it's, it's sort of a strange one. Um, Robert Jordan and Wheel of Time, that, this franchise, is in the top three fantasy franchises in the history of the genre. Uh, you have The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien. You have um, C.S. Lewis and Narnia. And Robert Jordan's number three. Wow. Um, I didn't realize and, that. And in fact, worldwide, uh, the Wheel of Time books have outsold Lord of the Rings. So it's it's a it has a huge following, but it's a very strange fan base because well, there, there are fourteen of the books rather right. than uh, so that has to be taken into account. But still, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, now that they're no longer in production, or maybe they are. Uh... No, the, the the last book in the series, A Memory of Light, was released this January eighth, and uh, I have to say. I was very fortunate. I got to go to the, that night, I got to go to the Q&A in Provo, Utah, where on the stage were uh, Brandon Sanderson, who after Robert Jordan passed away, uh, the mantle was handed to him to finish the franchise. Um, he was on the stage. Harriet McDougall, who is uh, uh, Jordan's widow, um, and Maria, and she'll kill me because I can't remember her last name, but she is the probably the single greatest authority she was robert jordan's personal secretary um and uh the gentleman who runs the dragon mount uh website uh fan site which is uh, jason denzel they were all on the stage and they, it was a free auditorium thing you got to go in and sit down and actually have a conversation with them and talk to them about you know what it means the end of this 20 year old franchise Started in 1991 or 1990, I think. 1990, I think the first one came out. Exactly. So um, that was kind of, that was very cool, and I got to talk to Harriet, and and uh, I've gotten to know Brandon pretty well. Um, he's a great, very chill guy. It's, it's it's very cool to meet some of these these kind of what have become iconic authors, and you meet them in person, and they're just straight up down to earth, very nice people. Um, but let me tell you about the, let me go back and tell you about the fan base. So the thing about the fan base is that there seem to be three categories of people associated with the fan base. There are the diehard fans, which Uh is, which makes up the core of the fan base. And it's, it's this mass. And then all around the outside of this is this little membrane of people who haven't necessarily read it, but they know somebody who's read it. Or they've read a little bit of it, or or they you know they're aware of it, and then outside of that, no one's ever even heard of it. It's the strangest phenomenon. I mean, you think Star Wars, right? You may never have seen Star Wars, but you have an idea of what it is. It's part of the social landscape at this point. Um, but not so with Wheel of Time. Well, that's You're not going to happen with a book quite as easily because you don't have the visuals. 
Well, until never, until now. But think of but think of C.S. Lewis. You maybe have never read *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, but chances are you've heard of it. That's true. Well, and uh, I had the good fortune to actually work on the first movie. Oh, nice. So, yeah, uh, I worked for uh, Rhythm and Hughes, and we were the ones who, who did The Lion, which was breakthrough animation at the time. Yeah, the, 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 for, the, the lead on The uh, Tiger for Life of Pi was also the lead on Aslan, which is kind of really? nice, I think. <laughs> yeah. He has big cat guy. So, uh, anyway, so the, the thing about it is that this fan base, um, which, of course, the Wheel of Time franchise uh, was published and through Tor Books. And Tor is a very well-known, fan-friendly publisher. They really oh, yeah. like the fan interaction. Well, um, the... And well, that's now. what I'm saying, is that art, our big challenge, as is the challenge with any heavily read body of literature... Is that of course everybody has their internal image of what these things are and how they look and um, and we worked really hard to avoid other people's conceptions and it's really hard when there's as much fan art as there is out there and other things. Yeah, but the so, prose is so rich and descriptive. I, it seems to me that it would be hard to go wrong because the, the instructions are right in front of you. The heavy breathing you might be hearing on the soundtrack is not me, I promise. It's our dog, Tegan, who has decided <laughs> that this is the perfect moment to come say hi and stick her nose right in the middle of everything. Well, hello, hello Tegan. Tegan. <laughs> Sweet old dog. Anyway. Please continue. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. That's right. So... Um, so the visuals, yeah. Yeah, we really had a we really had a challenge because, um, again, and I, I really, I mean, I just address something very quickly. First of all, there's this term you'll hear, which is a no budget film. There's no such thing as a no budget film. Every film has a price and a cost, and uh, and whether that is determined by the labor that goes into it, um, it still it still has a cost. But for a, for a film where we were essentially paying for it as we went and it was coming all out of pocket and everybody, most people were volunteering all their time and effort. Uh, we have over 160 people in the cast and crew. That's a, that's a very, that's a very uh, nerve wracking, dangerous way to, to produce a film. It, it is, it is. But I think that um, in this particular case, if we would have put forward at the beginning, yes, we need this much money. We wouldn't have gotten the people to come on board. Oh, no. I think I think that it, it had to do with the idea that we, you know, I, as I as I said in the in the documentary that we made about it, the making of it. Um, what was what was fantastic is that people caught the dream of the project, and that's what made it happen. That's what made it come together. And I and I think that if you, you know, if you say a number like, you know, half a million dollars to people. Uh, that we're going to have to give um, at the beginning, they'll probably run away screaming. Yeah, you're very uh, likely, very likely. But if you go, hey, you know, we're 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 nickel and diamond. We're putting the the actual cash required into it. Um, if you people throw in your time, we'll put this. We'll, we'll make something that is stunning, that is cinematic, that is the best we can possibly do, and we'll get it out there for people to see and and bring bring attention to this community and what this community is capable of. And I think that that excited them. So how long did it take uh, 
take to actually uh, put this project in front of the lens, and how much time did you spend in post? He's still spending it, I think. He's still spending, still spending it. a little bit of time in post, yeah. Um, well, the, we, we put the official start date of the project at November 7th, 2011. Um, and we were mostly... Uh, what, this, is part of the, this was part of the challenge, is that as the project developed, things changed in the project because, A, we started out, we were just going to shoot, you know, write a, write a script and shoot that, that chapter, and then we realized that wasn't going to work because for people who were not fans, they were not going to be able to follow what was going on because of the context in the book. Mm-hmm. So then we had to kind of, we had to rewrite the script. And we decided, you know, when we, after we did one shoot, we went, well, when we do the interior tavern shoot, we want to, we want to build on the world. So we want to make sure that um, uh, we have characters that are peoples that are described in Jordan's world present in the tavern so that when you look around it has that wheel of time world feel about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just seem like generic tavern, you know, medieval tavern. So things like that developed along the way. Um, and, you know, and I, I think that there are projects that are, and sadly, as we were saying earlier, the fix it in post thing, I think a lot of modern, even big budget projects develop with changes along the way like that, um, which is costly and and has its uh, its own set of problems but um i think that uh as as far as the you know we were we did our very first shoot uh on april 23rd and 24th of 2012 Mm -hmm. and that was all predominantly exteriors and one interior at the location where we shot the tavern that's where we created the town scene, and, and, and that's when we had most of the, you know, the largest group of extras present was during that shoot. How many ex- uh, How many people did you have at maximum on the set? Uh, at one time? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, we had about... That'd be 50 people, didn't it? Yeah, did it just look had, like it? We had, about, we had about 30 extras, plus all of the, you know, sundry cast and crew, or no, I'm sorry, crew... So, you know, um, DP and, uh, yeah, it was probably pretty close to 40, 45 to 50 people. Any, th- any of them that. actually pass out from the heat? I, I remember uh, seeing in the, the, uh, the documentary that the heat was incredible. Well, okay. And that was before you got the light, the, into, in the tav- into the tavern set and turned the lights on. Yeah, it was, it was about 96. To, I mean, this was a very hot summer here. Um, and I have to say, this is not me being a martyr or bragging, but this is just reality. Uh, from probably, that's it was April 23rd, so probably from about the end of March, end of March till July 21st, I worked every single day, personally worked every single day, an average of 11 hours a day outside. And it was, it was the average temperature was between 96 and 104 degrees. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. You'd think it would be nicer in April, but probably Well, I mean, it was, it was averaging that pretty, pretty hot temperatures pretty much that entire time. And, I, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating to say that I, there was not one day that I didn't work. There was one 18-hour day outside it was, as we got into the, 
you know, into June when the days were long, longer the day was, the longer I was out there working. Yeah. So, save the uh, lights. <laughs> <laughs> well, what it what it comes down to is, and this is this is something that's a little hard for some people to digest, but the tables that are in that the, the tables you see people sitting at, the bar they're sitting at, the pillars, those wooden pillars, all the candle holders the mantle around the fireplace, I made all of those things myself. And they melted. No, they didn't melt. Well, the candles did, in fact, melt. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> you got to do plastic candles or something like that, yeah. That was, a, that was a, that's another very entertaining story. But, um, but yeah, so, um, so we were out there shooting in April. It, it, was, it was in the 90s, and, of course, we're in a location. So let me tell you a little bit about that location. That, that uh, sort of castle-looking place is an amphitheater called the Castle Amphitheater that was built as part of the New Deal in 1936, mm-hmm. 1937. And it was built on the grounds of the State Mental Hospital. Whoa. <laughs> okay. <coughs> okay. Uh, I, I think I could have maybe found a better place to put that. <laughs> well, Why? There were no lunatics left except maybe, like, actors. But <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, built a, they built it, I guess... Uh, as a way to create activities and entertainment for the inmates. And I was like, what? Because they wanted that kind of Inquisition theme? Or, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it, it's, it's really a bizarre place. But when you're there, even if, it's, even if the air temperature is, like the wind temperature is cool, you're surrounded by stone. So it gets very hot. And it's light colored, so it's a lot of reflecting uh-huh. light. So you're in a pizza uh, oven the whole time, basically. Pretty much. And, and these people got really hot, and they got really tired. And oh, poor, boy. poor Ulfric, he, you know, he's, uh, in fact, I, I got my height wrong. No. He's actually six foot seven. Now, Ulfric is the, uh, is Ulfric is blacksmith? The, uh, the blacksmith, yeah. the big, big guy. He's a big galoot. No, 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 he's actually he's actually a thug. The blacksmith is the guy he's killing. Oh, oh I sorry. see. Okay. <laughs> so, to be, uh, somebody who can kill a blacksmith has better be darn tough. So, yeah, and uh, so oh. he has a seventy inch waist, and he's six foot seven. And he said, oh my God. he's actually the short one in his family." Whew. So we talked about this uh, uh, earlier when we were first talking about having you on the show. Uh, uh-huh. What the the reason for doing this in the first place? I had originally assumed was to uh, to pitch this idea as a full length feature motion picture, but that's not the case, is it? It is not. Um, we what what we did is we said, okay. Ooh, imagine um, what you could do with someone else's money. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> well, we imagine, um, but really, what it was is that we went. You know, science fiction and fantasy are the two best genres. If you want to demonstrate what your skill set is and what your people can accomplish, you grab those by the horns and pull it off, and you will wow people. Because you have to create a world. That's that's a that's you know sort of something we we came to realize. Um, and I watched. Uh, I know this is so hokey, but I couldn't help myself because I love it. Um, I have all three of the extended editions of Lord of the Rings, and I don't even watch the movies. I just watch the supplemental material. That's all I'm interested in. And I'll watch it over and over again. But they really went to great lengths. I mean, granted, they had, you know, New Line's money, but they had they, they went to great lengths to to really build everything. And I, I if I'd had my way, I would have built everything. 
but you know um, when you're the guy and it's the, the challenge I run into here is that um, I have a very unique skill set and it is difficult to find people here who have enough of the same specialized skill set that I can just kick something over to them to do and they can do it and pull it off the way it's supposed to be so I have a similar problem with the radio uh, station <laughs> well, well, only you have to know all of the skills. <laughs> you can, right. you know, the the photographer doesn't have to know anything about sound. The you know, right? And as, I'm, I'm saying, just as far as the things that that I do as the production designer, um, they're just a lot of skills because I I come from a unique background and um, spent my childhood uh, learning how to do all sorts of things because I was I grew up in a house under construction, so. Um, when you are like that, especially in the woods, you learn how to use tools and hammers and things and stuff from the time you're a child. And a lot of people don't have that as part of their background. Um, I'm very good at improvising and coming up with strange solutions to impossible questions. Um, so uh, anyway, going back. So the reason that we took it on is that it presented a great challenge to illustrate what this group of people here can do. And um, it was, you know, we, we recognized uh, along the way that um, even though it was a fan film, we were, we were, you know, we were dealing with someone else's intellectual property. And we were going, okay, well, that has to be how we, we can't think about this as something that is monetizable. We have to think about it as something that is, um, that is really about about producing something because we have a, a surprising number of fans in the crew and in the cast. That's 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 the other thing, by the way, that brought people out. They were just excited to be able to work on something that was, you know, actualizing uh, Wheel of Time. Well, that's so, never has that ever been option for a professional uh, production. Uh, actually. Um, that's a long and sorted tale. And yeah, I'm sure to, it I, is. Okay. I have to. I have to tread lightly, but okay. um, I'll I'll, I'll back off of that. But I do keep I do keep in mind that uh, Ray Bradbury sent all his daughters to college on options for uh, the Martian <laughs> Chronicles before it actually was produced. So, I, but, yeah. I, I but you, the can, point of I, curiosity I, is yeah. is still there. I mean, it's obviously it has been optioned, and uh, you're not really party to that, and there's really no way to crack that door you're, open. Well, you're, but you're first out of the gate, one way or another, so that, that makes history. Well, it does, and, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, and in some ways, that makes things a little nervous for us. But, um, but I, I, think that, I think that what's great, I've done a lot of groundwork. Um, as the way I keep describing it is that you know, when this train is ready to roll out of the station, I've got tracks going to every part of the fan base around the world. And, and I think that's what it's really about. I want to see, my excitement at this point is I want to see if, if we actually succeeded. I want to see if the fans watch it and go, woohoo! That's, that's what I want. But oh, I, I, want I, I think I there think... will be 10% of trolls who just won't be satisfied with anything. Just know that accept it you really don't but the fans are going to the fans are really going to love this i mean i've seen some of the advanced footage and uh it's it does for wheel of time what uh jackson did for the hobbit and lord of the rings 
And uh, I Ooh, also that's think... A, that's a poster quote. It is. That's a, that is. That's, and, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, well, here's the other thing I think. I think that if they finally get this Wheel of Time movie into production and the fans go see it, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go back and look at your film and say, see you guys, this is the bar you have to meet. <laughs> at minimum, wow. or we're not going to go see it. Well, see, and that's, that's I think, um, speaking in that sort of strategic way, I think that's actually one of our aces in the hole. Because of the strange nature of the fan base and, and its, its insular quality, um, I think that the entities that currently hold the film rights probably are, it's unlikely they're going to, I mean, why would they? It, it, it can only help them and what they're doing to bring attention to the franchise mm-hmm. and that fans yeah. are doing this. And if they, if and because Tor is such a fan-friendly publisher, and the fans have embraced this franchise in so many ways, from costuming to, to you know, like straight-up cosplay to um, fan art, uh, music, all sorts of things. Um, for the the entities that currently hold the film rights to attack the fan base for embracing the franchise I think will just alienate their audience and and I and I think they know that um, so our I think, hope is I think the only uh, I think their only path forward is to at least acknowledge what you did and say okay we need to make it at least this good and hire you and but that's my opinion <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be some connective activity going on there at some right. level no matter what well, that's our well, hopes and dreams at work here. Do continue. <laughs> well, you know, um, and, if, and if it does, it does. You know, that, that's the thing I try really hard to do, is I say, you know what? Everybody involved from the beginning, I said, I want you to think of this as a really fantastic showpiece for you and your work. Whether it results in anything else, to me, and I, I know that how this sounds, but really... My goal, my purpose in this project at this point is I want all the people that threw in to, to get what they wanted to get out of it. So, you know, David Powell, our production designer, his dream was to work at Weta. That's what he wants to do. He wants to work at Weta. And all I can hope is that this, you know, and, and let me say um, what's fantastic is that he went to Comic-Con last year, and we already had the Mirdral armor done. He took it with him and got to show it to Richard Taylor, the head of Weta, in person. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my thing right now is that the success of the project for me is that it's seen, that, that people appreciate it, and that all these people have put so many, literally thousands of hours of work into it get the recognition that they deserve and that and that what it does is it puts it opens doors for us as a production group to be taken seriously so that we can get funding and distribution for other things we want to do um that's that's the other hope so if we reach uh 75 percent of those goals i will be happy i think one of the remarkable things about the project is that you are essentially unfettered by what has gone before in terms of media there isn't in this any. franchise, because there isn't any. 
you have the opportunity to do, as I was mentioning earlier, you have the opportunity to do for this what Peter Jackson did for the Lord of the Rings. Well, what bar did he have to re, uh, well, go you know, surpass? Ralph Bakshi and Rankin Bass. Uh, yeah. Okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. <laughs> that, well, but you know, that's one thing I think that really blew the world away. Is that, and I think, okay, I'm going to say this. I think that one of the reasons that Peter Jackson did as well as he did is that he approached the Lord of the Rings in New Zealand with a similar ethic as we approach this. Yes. And what I mean by that is that he said, how can I put as many quality, talented people to work in New Zealand as I possibly can. And he did it. He, he pulled, I mean, there were potters that were making, you know, uh, drinking vessels. There were carvers that were, he put so, for seven years he put people to work. He brought the motion picture industry to New Zealand. It wasn't there before. Well, it before wasn't like there. they had no production there. Well, no, but, but they certainly put him on the global stage. Yes, they they did, in fact, and uh, and uh, you could do the same for Utah. We don't know. We'll see. Well, that's that's well. I'll tell you. So that's really my goal. My goal here is, I really would like to see. There, there's a there's. I call it the, I call it the Utah film community problem, which is that you have. Because of the, again, I'm going to keep using that word, insulary nature of this state, and, and we're all familiar with the, the history of the state and a lot of the stigmas associated with the state, um, there are all these young, ambitious film people that are really wanting to get out, and, and, and they're, they're wanting to do something. They're wanting to engage film, and, and be they're very excited about it. But because so many of them have come from very restricted access backgrounds they are not terribly they're not as educated in film as they could be and they all have this idea that this kind of rugged individualistic concept of filmmaking um, what I consider to be kind of an adolescent perspective of filmmaking oh mm -hmm. I'm going to make it in my backyard with an 8mm camera and, um, and it's going to go big and uh, it'll be world famous and yeah, and then I'll, and then I'll be I'll be the next. You know, they don't know who Stanley Kubrick is, but um, <laughs> they really don't. Um, I, I it's a very funny thing I deal with all the time on sets here. Where I'll go, okay, so you know, you know, um, you know, in Apocalypse Now, and they've never heard of it. Yikes! Whoa! And I'm going, I'm going, wow! So this like is basic entire... film school stuff that have that that people like you and I have been exposed to. They haven't had. They, they haven't even heard of it. Oh boy. And so and so that's a, a kind of a challenge here. Um that is kind of a double edged sword. It has its positive sides too because they're not overly socially informed either. So there's a flexibility. There there are perspectives that come out of them that I wouldn't think of because I am overly socially informed. So as far as film is concerned. So um, you got less to unlearn too. Right. Yeah. And and the thing that's that that I, that they do is they we are the land awash in shorts and teasers and it's like you realize if all this effort the all these people and they're very clicky and they're all like i'm the guy and i'm, I'm going you know what i said the other day i said look when when you are receiving your uh, recognition at sundance cons or the oscars then you can be that guy until then suck it up <laughs> 
Here's here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You got to do your time. Oh, just, come on, a little humility, people, and real. And that's the other thing. They're not really recognizing that it's a collaborative art, and and they're they're trying to. I keep telling people this. I say, you know what? I I resist watching a film that has been edited by the director because it means that they're trying to. They're trying. They're not recognizing the the necessary objectivity that you have to have to take something because it's very hard for a director to, to, to divorce himself from the sentimentality of his own shooting. Cecil B. DeMille, Cecil B. DeMille said, um, uh, "A writer needs his pen, a painter needs his brush, a director needs his army." Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So brutally true. So brutally true. Um, and and so there is a kind of an educational process, and I'm hoping to facilitate that by raising the bar and, make, and, and putting together more and more professional productions here. Um, so, and it seems like that's very possible. This, in fact, it, it's very ironic to me that the Wheel of Time may end up being recognized historically as the catalyst that really started that here it, because it, it that's my mission it will continue to be my mission I want to get this community unified and to work and that's it so so you're coming into the visual <laughs> effects rich genre at a very interesting time how do you see your place in it in the next year or 10 or how you know foreseeable uh, as, future as far, um are you are you going to go ahead you, with uh, with uh, visual effects focused films, or or is this just a stepping stone to, you know, the next? Uh... Well, the, the let me let me address that. First of all, I have to admit my own bias. Um, my when I worked in the film industry in L.A., um, my area that I worked in was props, miniatures, special effects, sets, that kind of thing. So practical. Yeah, much and, much the same place I started out in. And one of the Ooh, things that's that, becoming computerized too. Yeah. Well, you know what though, um, there is a myth, and the myth is that digital is cheaper than practical, and it is uh, very much not the case. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. how not. Tell us about that. Digital, well, digital, just the 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 pay rates and the hours and the size of the crews and the technology are all very expensive. It's a it's a pricey it's a pricey way to go, and if you can have a, a dedicated team building a practical effect, for example, you know, sure we could have had someone animate the the dice board, the top of the dice board, and and do the dice. But I knew that I could take a couple days and build a 2.5 times larger version of the center of my dice table, and build weighted make weighted dice. And with magnets in them, and get the same effect, um, very inexpensively. And what's great is these dice actually roll, which means they capture light the way objects capture light, because they're actual objects capturing light. Also, there's the the very much the individuality of each die uh, in the roll. So <laughs> and this uh, is why you're in Utah and not in Nevada, because they would they would frown on you inventing your own uh, magnetized dice, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, the advantage That's of true. visual effects, uh, 
I believe, is when you have to do something impossible, like putting a human being uh, in a situation where they would probably meet a rapid and painful death. Uh, Or you need to do something like have a character pick up a tanker truck and throw it across the street. Things like that. Right. Uh, that and, and that's very difficult agree. too. I don't know. He's got you know four hundred pound giants uh, <laughs> throwing around blacksmiths. So you know yeah, that's well, that's the kind of thing uh, visual effects are for. Or he doing, is a practical effect. Doing uh, like in Friday Night Lights, for example, the football movie from four or five years ago, uh, they had right. to do this uh, opening shot where their the helicopter POV is flying over the football stadium and the parking lots full and the games going on and the stands are full of people. Well, FAA regulations prohibit you from flying helicopters over <laughs> occupied stadiums. So they can only fly over unoccupied ones, which means there are no cars in the parking lot and there's no game going on in the in the stadium. So all of that has to be added in afterwards. Things like that. That's exactly. that's what effects is for. It, it's often used in places you wouldn't imagine that spe- visual effects is actually being used. Yeah, but this chapter um, takes place in a situation where you don't need any of that. <laughs> so the the proper, the uh, practical effects is, is the right approach. I think the only reason you might have reason to use that is uh, for a long shot to do a matte shot or a scene extension or something like that. Right. Well, or I mean, we did have, uh, for, for that particular application, yes. Um, I, we do have, you know, there is something in the Wheel of Time universe uh, kind of like the force that's called the One Power. Mm, mm-hmm. And these um, um, various people are trained, uh, they have an accl- they're acclimated to, or have an, um, uh, an affinity for, I should say, they have an affinity for and uh, develop skills to use the One Power in various ways. The Aes Sedai, which are these sort of like uh, female Jedi, for lack of a better description. They're sort of like witches, kind of, but they're... Bene Gesserit from Dune. Bene Gesserit, a little more active. Perf- not- they're, they're like, yeah, they're like, they're like active Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, they, they do this thing of weaving, and they can pull things into existence using the one power, and our Aes Sedai uh, actually weaves fire out of the air. Um... So in our opening sequence. So the, the thing about that is, I mean, that's obviously a visual effect thing that would be very difficult to do. Um, I know that there are a lot of the people I've connected with who saw the video that I shot of me lighting my hand on fire. I don't know if you right, guys saw that. We saw that on Facebook just this morning. Exactly. Uh, I, and that was, um, but I, was, I did that to, I was trying to explain to one of our visual effects artists um, how I was imagining the one power manifesting on the on Rand's hands in the scene where he starts to pull the one power for the first time, and uh, all the words in the world just weren't doing it. So I said, "Look, okay, here, I'm just going to light my hand on fire." <laughs> so how did you demonstrate? Just uh, this is this is sort of a branch off the topic, but how did you do that without becoming horribly injured? Well, um, I okay. We're going to reveal a little bit about myself. Firebender. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, um, I have played with because I grew. Okay, so I grew up in a house where we had a wood cook stove, wood heat stove. Um, very primitive. I grew up very pioneer, and you know, you learn how to do things by the time you're six that most kids 
don't ever learn or they don't learn until they're, you know, in their teens. And that is, you know, I knew how to chop wood and all those things. So I learned how to start the stove and I would start the stove on a fairly regular basis. Um, I played with fire all the time when I was a kid and, 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 you know, safely, I mean, it was in the pine forest, but never burned it down. Um, was very good at it. So I, I played with various things, various flammable things. And one of my favorites is rubbing alcohol because it burns with the blue flame and uh, it doesn't burn super hot. It can get hot, but it doesn't burn super hot. So what you see in that video is I'm actually pouring rubbing alcohol in my hand and just lighting it on fire. And, you know, you can tell I'll hold my hand there for a little while and it starts to get a little bit hot and then I put my hand out. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, it's getting a little bit hot. So, yeah. Um, well, alcohol fires are not as hot as, like, house fires. This is not Fahrenheit 451 on your hand. This is no. much less. And this is it's why a, I no. didn't burn anybody's house down at Christmas when I spilled the uh, the, the Christmas pudding uh, rum trick. So, <laughs> a note to those at home. Rafen did this. Nope. Uh, he is a trained professional. Do, Do not, not try, try this, this at, at home. home. Do not. You will, in fact, ever. Well, it would be very, it would be very easy for someone that really didn't understand the limits of their own, their own limits, and the, um, and really understand fire and the dangers of fire, um, and the challenges of fire. uh, They could burn themselves really easily, um, or throw burning liquid onto something that could start something on fire. So unless you are a real ace today. Don't. <laughs> exactly. And the thing to remember um, about fire is that what you are looking at is plasma. It is. Yep. It is not even. Uh, it is not a, a, any form of matter that you understand. It is protons. <laughs> and and also that it extends farther away from your whatever it is that's burning than you can see. There are. Uh, I actually actually was a forest firefighter for a while. Mm. And and uh, you learn amazing things about fire in a burning forest. Let me tell you. <laughs> I'll, bet. I'll bet. I I saw I saw some things doing that. I saw fire devils. Whew, that it's like a dust devil, but it's a it's a column of spinning fire. Whoa! <laughs> you do not want to be near one of those. And you no. were. Uh, so getting I was. getting back to getting, getting back to the point. Getting getting back to the film. Uh, yes. How involved were you in the writing and the rewriting of the, the script for this? Um, you know, uh, I really tried to embrace this from the perspective of a collaborative art. In that, and in the collaborative art, you know, there are a lot of different people who have a lot of different tasks to do. Um, of course, I poked my head in, but I also knew that you have to trust your team and you have to trust the people you're working with. So, um, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, I left, you know, I left a lot of that up to the screenwriter and to the, and the director to go back and forth, and then I would look things over along the way and give my two cents. Um, especially as as because even though I was an executive producer and I acted at, and I um, did a lot of producing work, my real principal job was as the production designer, and I, I tried to behave that way um, so that we weren't stepping on each other's toes and running into each other in the dark. So, um, I don't know. The guy without the eyes had to be uh, running into everybody. <laughs> when, when people start cosplaying him, it's, it's not going to be pretty at, at the comic con. 
Well, and he he presented us with some interesting challenges. He could when we had him out there in the salt flats and he had that prosthetic on, he could see he said he could see about three to four feet in front of him. And luckily it's the salt flats because it's not like you're gonna walk in anything. There's nothing there. But um other than salt. And um, and the crew. <laughs> and the crew bonk into the camera. That's a great shot. But he um you know Tom is a fan, he's a he's really a, a, a high quality actor. He's worked in the genre quite a bit. Um, I'm I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten cast to play. You know, he's got that look, the actual actor. He's got that look where he could play a Boromir or a Faramir. You know, he could play one of those parts. He's um, like I said, very very professional. Um, really. It was kind of interesting when he got into the character to play the Myrtle on uh, both occasions because he's the Myrtle. He was uh, he played the Myrtle without the prosthetic in our earlier shoots with the dead people in the tavern and all of that. Um, but he also played on the salt flats, and it's only on the salt flats where you actually see him with his hood back, his hood off. Um, but he, uh, it was interesting to watch him become that character and go into that character uh <clears throat> he got very hard to communicate with just as a person when he was in his care in that mm. character because that character very dark <laughs> yeah he got way into it and um to the point where you know i think he was even making some people sort of uncomfortable oh, cool. <laughs> how cool and he seems like this handsome and, and very nice chap in the uh, documentary footage <laughs> he, he well he is he, is. Sure he he's, is he's very he's very um kind of soft spoken but you can tell that he could probably kill you if you wanted to <laughs> he's just one of those kind of people you know he's kind of got that uh i don't know teddy roosevelt sort of it's okay uh, to be. It's okay to be dangerous. So <laughs> one of the things I that struck me when I was watching the documentary, uh, the few clips of the actual footage from the film that are in the documentary, as it in the in the version of it that I saw, uh, right. it the visual design really really sets the mood. I mean, you know right away that you are in a world not not the one that you came to the theater in. But right. you are in the world of, of the, the Wheel of Time. Do you have the uh, musical score set up for this at this point, or are you still scoring it? We have, um, we have all of the... The score is complete. Um, as far as it being mixed with um, the film... Okay, I, mean, I don't know how many of the listeners know the process, but pretty much you, you shoot the footage, you edit the footage, you do the visual effects and cut those things into the film. Um, and then once all of that is picture locked, that goes to the sound design and the, and the composer and the, you know, the scoring process. They're usually working on these the themes for it in advance of this. But when it comes to putting, you know, assembling it, mm -hmm. um, that doesn't happen until our current process is completely done. It's going to go over to Brian Parsons, our sound designer, uh, just, I, you know, I know I'm segueing, but I, I just, I feel so honored to have this opportunity to work with such talented people and that they're, and that they, they're talented. They don't 
they wouldn't have to be doing this. They, they have professional careers of their own doing various things, but they wanted to do it. And the result is just phenomenal. But, but um, so the next phase is, is when, as soon as we get these last visual effects shots, and that goes over to Brian, he's going to go through and level all, this, uh, level all the dialogue, add atmospheric sounds into it, um, in, enhance certain things and interject little bits, um, things to expand the audio experience of the world. And then uh, he'll be taking the score and adding the score into it at the same time, which is already done. The score is already finished. Okay, who's your composer? Our uh, composer is Nathaniel Drew. He is the uh, conductor for the Salt Lake Studio Pops Orchestra. And he has, in fact, it was very strange. Uh, one of my closest friends when I lived in Los Angeles was a film composer named Lars Anderson. And uh, it turned out that Nathaniel Drew actually worked with him at UCLA oh, when wow. he was there. And I, I, was, I was like, really? This is a small world. It isn't, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, that's a real nexus for, film, yeah. for com- composers and film composers in particular. So, but at the same the, time, uh, creative people tend to cluster together. And, uh, that's true. Especially in high-concept projects like this, there just aren't that many... And they've all of been, us. and there they've aren't all been through, many of us. and they've all been through Schoenberg Hall at UCLA. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. So, uh, yeah, but Nathaniel Drew, uh, great guy. Um, so far, very impressed. He, so when we did, uh, and I don't know how many of the listeners know this, but we did uh, an exhibit of all of the sets and props and costumes for the film um, at the downtown branch of the Salt Lake Public Library. We uh, occupied uh, all five floors of the library with uh, displays and and the whole uh, the whole gambit there, and people really enjoyed it. But when we opened the event, our our exhibit was part of a larger event called Worlds of Fantasy, which opened on December fifteenth of two thousand twelve, and on that day, I had uh, talked to Brandon Sanderson and got him to come and he came and gave a presentation on fantasy literature for people that day. We had a costume contest and I got the I got Nathan to bring the Studio Pops Orchestra into the library and play our school. Oh, how cool is that? Is there is there any chance that we could have a clip from uh, from the score to uh, to play on Krypton to, Radio to edit as into a this teaser? show or yeah yeah. What is the uh, what is the clip, and uh, what are we about to hear? Um, this is uh, the this is a, a segment of when they when the the boys who are on the run are first entering the town of Four Kings, and it's sort of their introduction to the atmosphere. Um, one of the things you will hear in it that's fantastic is uh, because he really wanted the sound to have its own unique sort of sense. He uses a didgeridoo as part of the background to this very classic sort of uh, epic fantasy-style score, but there's there's definitely a didgeridoo and some other non-traditional instruments uh, in it. Let's have a listen.
that it was that's amazing that really sets the tone that's something i would listen to even if it wasn't part of a a movie (laughs) yeah and it's it it really sets aside really uh, a lot of the need for effects in in, i mean um so just about visual effects so one of the things that i and just to kind of finish that that conversation we're having i think like people talk about oh digital effects and how great they are and i go you know what have you ever seen the film a 2000 2001 there are some amazing model shots in that film unbelievable almost unparalleled like star wars wasn't even as good as some of those things mm-hmm. that, that Kubrick that Kubrick pulled off the whole sequence of that ship flying into the spinning orbiting space station that was all a miniature. And I, I look at it, and I still don't know how they did it. There's books on the um, subject. I, those were some of my formative uh, years reading and, uh, you know, why I got to be a film major. <laughs> well, they, they had some sophisticated techniques at the time for shooting uh, with that, uh, those miniatures. One of the problems they had was uh, they didn't have film that was... Uh, low enough uh, that was sensitive enough to the low levels of lights, they had to use something called slit scan, uh, which gave them the ability to uh, use a a fair amount of light and get a nice uh, uh, depth of field on it so that they could get the entire model in the same focal length, because otherwise you'd see part of the model in focus and part of the model out of focus and it would look like a model. Right. So they slit scanned the light over the model, and then they tracked that uh, that slit of light, so that that part was always in focus. So that went, that allowed them to take shots of of small objects and made them look like they were very far away when they weren't. It was it it, it still is one of the most phenomenal sequences. That's and you know and. Forgive me, Gene. I, I know that things have advanced, but <laughs> I no. I, they I haven't. They advanced. haven't. You know. Well, no. I know they've advanced, but to this day, <clears throat> it's still some of the best still, stuff ever done. But I still can't get past the digital work on Jurassic Park. I look at that film and I watch it, and I go, "That is just amazing. It's amazing." And that was what 1993. Yes, yeah. and that was the first film. That uh, that soft homage was used in, and uh, I understand that uh, uh, Steven Spielberg was going to use uh, puppets. He was <laughs> going to use he was going to use stop motion puppets to do it until yep. he saw what they could do with soft homage and computer animation. And what sold him was a close-up shot of one of the dinosaurs' feet deforming as it pressed into the ground. The volume mm. preservation of it, which you could not do with a, right. uh, with a foam puppet. And that's the shot that sold He says, okay, screw this, we're going to do this computer <laughs> animation. And that was the well, first, I mean, first major film where they had any major computer animated characters. Um, well, char- okay, characters. characters. I was going to bring up... Uh, the last starfighter, star but that was all right. spaceships and stuff. That, that wasn't was spaceships. Well, that was spaceships, and that was a little after Tron, which was actually yeah. I still yeah. blown away by, by yeah. Tron. Well, only about yeah. 20, 22 to twenty seven percent of Tron was actually computer animated. Most people don't realize that. There's a lot of guys in 
suits with glowy bits. Yeah, too. and uh, a lot of that was just sort of comped in and and right. or roto- photographic. Processes. Yeah, rotoed in and photographic processes, and, and only about but a fourth the, of the film was the time, It was still pretty impressive. Oh yes, and uh, and uh, and I think it holds up when you watch the old and the 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 original film and the the twenty years later sequel. It 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 makes sense in context. It's nineteen eighties computer right. games versus two mm-hmm. thousands computer games and it, it really does make sense and a pretty amazing job of projecting uh jeff bridge's face yes <laughs> yeah. yes <laughs> um but yeah but i mean i think my my point is is that amazing things can be done with practical effects and i think that we've kind of gotten to a place where we have forgotten that um what i think about vfx is that just as you said uh gene that vfx their place is when, for example, Mount Doom, that makes sense to me. That is a massive undertaking. It has a lot of elements that would be very hard to do practically, um, especially when it's erupting and exploding and they're down on the, you know, on the side of it. Um, as a compositing, I mean, come on, compared to a, an optical printer, obviously computer compositing is cleaner, it's easier to manage, um, and can create a, a better overall effect, I think. So I think it has its place. I just think that um, I remember when I worked on the 1999, I think it was 99, it was either 99 or 2000, the, the Jeremy Sisto uh, Jesus miniseries mm-hmm. that was uh, that was on CBS. Um, we did, a, a good, very good friend of mine and I, we're the ones, we built the uh, crack that opens up in the desert. And in that film. And, you know, I love to tell the story of this because here we've got, we're in, we're at CBS in, um, in Hollywood. We're in this little, they call it Hangar 19. It's this little sub sort of soundstage. And we built this 16 foot by 16 foot table. Well, it's two tables that we left a crack in the middle and then sculpted it out so that it mm-hmm. had, you know, crack shape. Um, and then basically I just took pieces of MDF and hinged them together in the middle and we, we created just a, a, a block in so that these pieces would, would fold down and the pieces would fall away so that when you pulled out so basically we were going well how are we going to do this we just put a 2x4 runner we put 2x4s up underneath we grabbed two extension cords and pulled from opposite sides that's, that's brilliant that just is uses, really, really, uses that physics is as we know it you know and it just and because we did the the little standing you know pressed in standing two by fours in a row, it was sort of a domino effect, and it collapsed from the center out and on screen. It looks great. And you could do it more it than looks, once if you had to. Oh, we we had to. <laughs> we had to reset it about three times. So, but the so Rafe anyway. uh, uh, Oh God. So this is so this is the stumbling. All... The stumbling part is the part. Another part I'm editing out here. Um, that's okay. For our listeners, where can we see the film? Uh, where when will we be able to see the film? And where will be we be able to see it? And and uh, will it be published on the internet? Will it be in short film festivals? Will and it be do you at, have Sundance? That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that uh, well, one thing we have to be very careful about is that we cannot make any money off of it. Um, okay. It's a fan film, and that's sort of the rules of fan films. Mm-hmm. 
Tor's o- Tor it. is okay with this, right? The publisher, the uh, or the, the yeah, Jordan well, estate. Um, well, the, the, they they don't have an issue because it doesn't affect their rights at all. Because uh, although um, they are, there are people close to it that are aware of it. I will certainly tell you that. <laughs> Um, and they and, and and they are unofficially supportive. Um, we just it, it's a it's a fine line. But anyway, um, as far as going out there, uh, film the, the problem. Like we would be probably willing to show it at conventions. We'd be willing to show it even at um, uh, festivals. The the danger is is that if we won at a festival and there was a cash prize, that crosses that line. Oops. So, so our thought—I mean, the one way that we thought of dealing with that is that there's this great local institution here called Spy Hop, which provides access and education uh, to at-risk, at-risk youth. Uh, it provides them access to all sorts of digital media, and they make short films, and they produce music, and they do all sorts of things. Um, my my thing, if I had, to, if any money came to us, I would probably donate it to them, just because I think that that helps cultivate the next generation of Utah filmmakers. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. That is, I think that's and, actually probably the loophole you can exploit to enter film competitions in this kind of thing, <laughs> saying if well, whatever that, we win goes to charity, we because we're not allowed and, and to make goes, money on this. And it goes to charity. It goes to a charity that I think. But um, my, the plan is this. Um, we are going to launch it on to the internet, most likely YouTube and Vimeo. Um, and I, like I said, I've been I've been connecting with, uh, networking with, and talking with uh, fans of not just Wheel of Time, but fantasy and science fiction in general, all over the world. Um, there's so much excitement actually that we've got people around the world that are talking about or helping potentially to facilitate free public screenings in other places. This just got this is just so exciting to me. Um, there's a there's a group in Melbourne, Australia that are exploring interest in Melbourne about finding a venue to put it up on a big screen and have a little party. We've got uh, a fine gentleman in Stockholm who is uh, I've been working with um, Fox Pertil. Fox, who us, happens right. to be a Krypton radio publicist. Amazing man. He uh, really is. There's a science fiction fantasy bookstore chain in that's in Chalk in Stockholm, but it's the largest largest chain in the EU that covers this subject matter. So if we can get them interested, maybe they'll they'll show it in more places. And I have a very good friend, uh, Linda Cavello, a photographer in uh, Manhattan, who just happens to be good friends with the owner of one of the most famous comic book stores in Manhattan, um, who is, uh, she's going to reach out to him and see if he would be interested in, in at least helping us connect with the fan base in, you know, New York and New Jersey to come to a public screening there. So, um, again, real opportunity. I'd like to see something happen in, uh, in L.A. too. I think that would be a very um, fun thing. But we're going to get it up. We're gonna, we're, you know, the the value of this thing is an exposure. The value is in people seeing it. So the more people we can get to see it, the better. So what kind uh, of a time frame 
do you think it, we're looking at before we be able to see it on the internet? You're asking me this question because you know what my answer is going to be. Um, people keep saying, when's it going to be done? And I go, soon. Um, we're pushing. Our, we we want to we want to put this up on our website as well. So we have we a vested interest. We want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Um, no, the the uh, the projected you know release. Uh, like I said, uh, I think that Brian has thought about this a lot. So I don't think it's going to take him a huge amount of time to do the sound and sound design. Maybe a couple days. Um, he's already got a lot of his thought process sort of worked out. Um, and it's down to these last couple of visual effect shots. Once these are in the can, uh, we're good. We're good. It's it's all everything else is done. The editing is done. A lot of the coloring is already done. Um, you know, certain little tweaks here and there are 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 going to are being taken care of. Um, oh, so, what's you know, what's the running time on this? An hour, a minute, something in between? <laughs> well, it's one of those three. Um, no, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, right now the running time is right around 24 minutes, okay. which I know, like, isn't it amazing? For that's a, a good, over a nice, year that's a nice chunk of film for a short film. It is. It is. Um, it's, uh, what's interesting is that we've really cut it so that the pacing works in such a way that it, you don't really notice it going by. It really feels like it's about a 10 minute film. So you are, we are perhaps uh, four or five weeks away from seeing this uh, being released? Well, we'll have enough time to uh, do our costumes for uh, Comic-Con then. <laughs> That's when you know you've made it, right? When people That's do right. costumes, right. when people do costumes from your comics. film, you'll know yeah. you've made it. It's, it. Well, the, the joke used to be is when they make an action figure of you. But um, the... Uh, I would say that four to five weeks. You know what? I'm going to stick with that. And if it happens sooner, I'll let you know. Very that good. sounds great. <laughs> Raven Wolfson, uh, thank you for joining us. The film is called Flight from Shadow, and it is an independent film based on Wheel of Time. Raven Wolfson, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Krypton Radio's Event Horizon. If you're listening, thank stay you so tuned. What's coming up next is an episode of X-1. And we're out. Thank you. Cool. You have been listening to Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. Join us next week on Saturday, 9 p.m. Pacific, for the next episode of The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens.